Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Fighting and taking on all the plates and paint and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Well, we're now into August, and uh, here in the U.S., at least, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is still raging, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Many of us are stuck working from home, and one of the big debates still raging is about whether or not schools should reopen this month in many parts of the country, uh, including uh, the public schools in my own city, where they have decided not to reopen on campus. They just made this official last week, and uh, we're here sticking with a form of distance learning. Uh, From what I can tell, many other school districts around the country are doing the same. However, uh, even in school districts that are remaining in a distance learning setup, they're struggling with trying to figure out when and how they'll reopen and what it will look like. It's become a bit of a cliche to say it, uh, but these are unprecedented times and no one seems to have a good idea of how to handle anything. Uh, And many people are very much making things up as they go along. That's one of the reasons why I was interested recently to be introduced to John Cordier, who is the founder and CEO of Epistemics, which is a startup that spun out of the Pitt School of Public Health. Uh, He, along with the former dean of the Pitt School of Public Health, Don Burke, uh, who is now also the founder and president of Epistemics, um, both of them are here today to talk about what they're doing as it pertains to COVID-19 and specifically questions around school reopenings. But what originally caught my attention is how they describe what they do. As regular listeners of the podcast know, I'm somewhat obsessed with different tools for modeling and trying to get a better understanding of possible futures. And Epistemics has built something that they call FRED, which is the Framework for Reconstructing Epidemiological Dynamics. Uh, Dynamics, I that it's it's a mouthful to say that, uh, which is an agent-based modeling system. That is rather than something like statistical projections that we frequently see, they've built a program that simulates a massive number of agents. That is simulations of each individual and how they might act in order to explore what the results might be uh, of a specific health intervention. In other words, uh, a somewhat perfect platform, I think, for trying to model a wide variety of things. But uh, the fact that they launched two years ago with a focus on modeling infectious diseases puts them in a perfect place to explore the world today in the midst of this, uh, well, rather terrible pandemic. So, uh, John and Don, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, So, Don, let's start with you. Can you give me some background on how epistemics came to be? Um, sure. I'm uh, uh, by background and training. I'm an infectious disease physician, uh, and I've worked my whole career on vaccine development and tracking of epidemic diseases around the world, including dengue and uh, HIV/AIDS and measles and influenza. Um, and after 9/11, there was a serious concern that smallpox would be used uh, as a bioterrorism weapon in the United States. And I attended a meeting and sat next to this uh, 
an, a, another participant who from the Brookings named Josh Epstein, who had written a book a few years earlier called Growing Artificial Societies. Um, and after we talked for a while, we decided that we could use that methodology, individual-based modeling or agent-based modeling, uh, to try to understand the right, the best ways to vaccinate against smallpox. At the time, there was a, a, a serious debate going on about whether or not we should immunize everybody in the United States against smallpox with potential complications and costs. Um, and so uh, Josh and I uh, got together and we, we did some simple models, uh, but they were sophisticated in that you represent each individual the individual's risk, their decision-making processes, and the strategies for use of vaccines. And that was influential in the national decision-making uh, about not to immunize everybody in the United States. There were a couple other groups that we worked with, so, and it was our consensus opinion that the model showed that was the best strategy. Well, based on that experience, I um, realized that this was a powerful tool. And so when I became dean at the Graduate School of Public Health at Pitt, uh, we put a lot of time and energy into modeling and simulation and development of agent-based modelings. Um, after a, uh, several years, uh, we realized we had a powerful tool that uh, would be um, should be shared with other people, could be made into a product. So we decided to found the company Epistemics. Cool. And and John, how did you get involved in this? So I was a graduate student in the School of Public Health at Pitt, uh, started five years ago. And uh, after my first year, the department chair gave me an opportunity to get involved with the Public Health Dynamics Lab. Uh, when Don first got the idea of, oh, maybe we could create a product and a company around Fred and you know look into uses in infectious disease, but across other social determinants of health, or even other more broad application areas. And so I started as a graduate student researcher in the lab and uh, we're working with Don and our other founder, John Greffenstedt, who uh, was the primary architect of the software. Over the last five years, worked with them and got to a point where we said, you know, there is a company here. And Don and John gave me the opportunity to step in as CEO. Cool. Um, so let's let's dig into how all this works. Um, I, I'd like to explore this idea of agent-based modeling. You gave sort of a, a very quick description of it in terms of you know having different agents that represent different individuals, and and you're putting in different variables. But can we go a little deeper on, on what does that really mean, or is, is there a good way for people who are listening to this who maybe aren't as familiar with uh, that process to to sort of think through what is what does agent-based modeling mean, and how is that different from other forms of modeling? Um. So the uh, another word for agent-based modeling is individual-based modeling, where you computationally represent each person as a as a separate entity, uh, and then uh, you imbue that uh, individual with characteristics: their age, their sex, their race, uh, where they live, which family they live with, where they go to school, where they go to work, uh, and so you create a whole population of these um, synthetic individuals. We uh, we did that um, many years ago uh, in cooperation with 
group called RTI, uh, where we took the data from the census and from education and from labor and transportation, um, and we're able to recreate a first order approximation of US society. We represented all 330 million individuals in the United States, assigned them locations, households, families, uh, and then let them go about their daily business um, in, uh, in the simulation. Uh, and then with that, we can introduce an infectious disease. And if a person becomes infected, they go to work, they may infect someone else who then takes the disease home to their family, who then spreads it in their family, who then spread it to the school. So you can reconstruct these epidemiological dynamics in a way that is uh, a first order, pretty good approximation of what goes on in reality. Is, and is it, um, first of all, where are you getting the data in order to, to model those 330 million people? What is that based on? Yeah, it's it's based on all of these federal government statistical databases uh -huh. that I mentioned, uh, and uh, so uh, that uh, they're each we don't have the real people. We don't sure. have you know the you know the uh, you know Don Burke is not in there, but there is a in Pittsburgh there is a, a, a an agent that is um, you know a couple of years younger than I am and a, uh, lives a couple blocks from where I do <laughs> and. Uh, and hopefully, you know, is in a little better shape than I am. Uh, but, uh, no, but nonetheless, it's a, there's a there's a a, a statistical uh, representation, but not right. exactly the uh, representation. And that way, we can mass the individuals and at the same time get the overall dynamics right. And um, when you're running these simulations, is it the kind of thing where you're you're running like a whole bunch of simulations over and over again to sort of see and then sort of averaging out what the results are or how does how does that work sure um each of each of these runs is a a statistical probability it's a mm -hmm. stochastic outcome that uh, so that even with only mildly different conditions you can end up with different outcomes and so you do have to run these we typically will run them at, uh, depending on the size of the population um, at least 10 or 20 times. And if we're just doing a single county, we may do it 100 times. Uh, but right. And that gives us a um, the distribution of possible outcomes. And then, then what we can do is we can change some of the inputs and see how the distribution of outcomes uh, is, uh, is different from the original distribution. Right. And so, I mean, it strikes me, obviously, it's easy to, to think through this model in regards to the current pandemic. I mean, it, that's very easy to picture how that that would be, uh, you know, sort of a very useful tool and sort of trying to model all different aspects of, of how this pandemic would spread and change uh, based on, on different policies. Um, and, and so it, it kind of strikes me as, you know, sort of the, the perfect tool for, for dealing with this and, and, you know, as you mentioned, certainly other kinds of epidemics. Um, is is this i mean it, it it feels almost almost too too good of a model for for this kind of situation um and so i i'm i i guess i'm trying to ask in the most polite way possible like uh you know we're we're in the middle of of a, a a terrible pandemic that's been a total mess and yet it seems probably 
good for you guys to have this model ready to go in that kind of situation is are, are you guys not happy <laughs> but are are you guys uh excited to be able to test the tool out in this situation you want to go ahead john sure so uh, i think yes there's a great opportunity but one of the other uh, challenges that we have is when you look at the public health response system across the country uh, you have 50 different responses, uh, mm -hmm. at least 50 different responses. And so you know, we have a great tool to enable people to build models and to understand what's going on in their specific geographies. Uh, but, you know, so yes, it's good in that sense. It's also uh, frustrating in a way that we have such a good, useful tool that you know, was developed specifically for instances like this um, and then getting it out, uh, there are other hurdles and, and getting people using it, there are other hurdles there um, because the the responses are so different uh, right. per location across the country. And, you know, that's something that it would, it would come up in, in other situations, even if you weren't looking at a, a pandemic that is, you know, a disease going across the entire country. There are, there are other uses where, you know, take, for example, the opioid epidemic. Uh, the opioid epidemic, you, know, you might have 50 different responses across the, uh, the U.S. to that as well. Um, and that's where, you know, this is a really good example of if we had a coordinated strategy or a coordinated platform across the United States to look at these epidemics, whether they be an infectious disease epidemic or something that's more of a socially driven epidemic, if, if everyone's using the same platform, which we would like to say should be our platform, <laughs> rather than building individual models or, uh, you know, some people are building things in Python, others people are building things in Rust or, uh, you know, in other C++ or you know, maybe even more crude models in other platforms. Um, it's difficult to compare sometimes. So, you know, the, the CDC and other places will publish on, oh, here are the 20 different models showing you know, here's the, the epidemic curves for COVID. And it's great that we have a number of modelers across the country looking at this, but uh, from our side, it's difficult to, to see how to compare and contrast across these specific models when they're using different softwares. And that's where um, we kind of see a solution, not just for COVID, but to bring people together to have a discussion around a common language. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the things that, uh, we haven't mentioned yet is that, yes, we have the platform for building models, but to facilitate building models for you know, non-computationalists. So, you know, you might have you know, great epidemiologists, great social scientists that might not have a, a strong computational background. We've developed our own modeling language that speeds up the model building process. So more of the thought and effort can be on the scientific side rather than the pure coding side. So mm -hmm. that's another um, component that, that we bring in and something that Don and John and the team have been working on for uh, a number of years, realizing that you know having the model is one thing, but being able to open up the platform for others to build models and then to make it easier for more types of people to build models, that's one of the things that we have going for us. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that you mentioned was being able to sort of 
you know, with this setup, with the agent-based setup is being able to model different areas. I mean, you talked about the, you know, 50 different responses and the fact that it's, it's realistically more than that because you have, you know, county level or city or, or, or even town level interventions. Um, how specific can you get with this platform? Because I can see that there's, there's value in, you know, looking at things from, from all of those different levels, right? I mean, there's value in thinking through what, what does a, a federal national level response look like, but also recognizing that different responses probably make sense in, in different areas based on, you know, population density and a variety of other factors. How specific can you get with this platform? So that's a great point. Uh, you know, we can cover every geography across the, the United States. So, when you run a simulation, you could run it on, you know, let's say the state of Indiana. Well, then you can zoom into a specific county. You could zoom into the city within that county. You can zoom into the neighborhood. You can zoom into the city block. Uh, so, you know, when we're talking about the, the granularity or the specificity of where we can model and, and to what level, you know, it can be you know, neighborhoods within a city comparing, you know, one another all the way up to, you know, let's compare counties around the same city. So from the, the granularity side, any, any geography in the U.S. is fair game. And so, but is it, is it just limited to the U.S. right now? So uh, we have the best information on the U.S. Uh, we have modeled outside of the United States, but for, for our purposes and where epistemics is focused, uh, right now it is predominantly U.S. Got it. Um, you know, and one question that I'm sure would come up for people looking at this is, you know, it, it sounds really interesting and obviously you put a lot of work and there's a tremendous amount of data that goes into these models. Um, but, you know, the output very much will depend on on how um, not just accurate the, that data is, but how relevant that data is to the particular thing that you're modeling, right? So, you know, how, how many different variables or are you including in this model and how do you determine if those are the, the right variables and the relevant variables for determining these things, right? Because you could have all this data, but if it misses the key variable that leads to the spread of, of COVID or, you know, opioids or whatever it is that you're modeling, you know, you could get out a very, uh, you know, misleading result, right? So, um, so that is, you know, that's a, certainly a problem with any kind of modeling that having the right kind of data for analysis and simulation is essential. For agent-based modeling, it's it's a, something we struggle with all the time that um, we need the, not only the data, but the granularity of the data. For instance, in the COVID epidemic, um, uh, it, there's still a, a knowledge gap on how transmissible the virus is among children, you know, mm -hmm. whether or not children are more susceptible or less susceptible in adults, whether or not they transmit more efficiently or less efficiently, and if so, quantitatively, how different are they? And so we have to put that into our simulations, particularly if we're going to be looking at um, age-specific transmission patterns. What we do is that we keep track of the science, uh, the scientific output is closely as we can, and then update the model with the best available scientific information. But that's that's a problem for us. I should 
let me just say that that's not only a problem for us. It's a problem for any decision maker sure. from anywhere uh, without having the right data. That you know, all decisions are based on models. Uh, it's just that some are mental models. Some are not explicit. They're just uh, discussions uh, and a, a, a common consensus conceptualization. But one, of the, one of the things that agent-based modeling um, forces us to do is to be explicit about mm. what those what that what those data requirements are and 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 even if the modeling um, isn't for the purpose of forecasting it one of the things it does is it sharpens your attention to the details that are necessary for those forecasts right right and actually i would imagine that that alone is is very useful um yeah. and and in doing this like have you done any sort of like you know backwards looking you know, look back at what people were thinking, you know, say back in March uh, and, and seeing what the model said then and compared to how things actually turned out to, to see if you can, you know, suss out any useful information that way as well. We, uh, there's a, a, another way of, of, of addressing that and that is we look back all the time. Um, mm -hmm. One of the projects we had uh, as part of our public health dynamics laboratory is we found ourselves going back to the historical record for other epidemics all the time. If we, when we were remodeling swine flu or other um, influenzas, we went back to the historical records for uh, 1918 or 1957 or 1976, 77, um, and would pull out those data as sort of the historical framework for what we might expect. We kept doing that over and over so that eventually one of the things we did, we decided to just go back and digitize the entire history of notifiable diseases in the United States going back to 1888, just because we needed these in computable form. And we um, kept going back to the historical record. And so we finally just uh, bit the bullet and said we would um, make that, uh, put that all into a computable form. We, we did it, we call it Project Tico. Uh, uh, T-Y-C-H-O, named after Tico Brahe, with, who, as you may know, was the, uh, it was his data that allowed Kepler to derive the laws of planetary motion. So as a doff of the cap uh, to uh, people <laughs> right. who uh, use data, that's what we emphasized. Um, and, and so... How, how have you sort of how have you gone about modeling COVID nineteen specifically? I mean, you mentioned obviously paying attention to the you know the science and the latest things that people have learned, which you know seems to be changing on a weekly or even daily basis in in some cases. Um, you know, has that changed the 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 model? Uh, you know, as you've well, I guess actually let, let me let me clarify that a little bit. Um, it, how, because you have, there's sort of two levels here that I think you've described, which is one is that you have all of this data and you've created these agents and then you're building these models sort of on, on top of that. So ha have you had to change the agent model or does it all just happen in, in how you uh, build the models on top of the, the data? Um, we've had to change as we go, um, as we've learned more. Um, so that... The, um, as I mentioned, the, you know, we're finding out more about the transmissibility and uh, and how to me how that's measured. Uh, the uh, one uh, component uh, is the natural history about 
what is from for a, a given individual from the time they become infected what is the path that they take how long do they stay asymptomatic uh, how right. long before uh, they then are able to transmit um, who transmits more than somebody else who infects whom uh, who tends to get sick and why and we try to get all of that information packed into the individual agents. Are, are you able to, because I know a lot of the discussion nowadays is under what conditions, um, you know, is it more transmissible? What are the super spreading events? You know, so it, it seems that right now, you know, people who are, uh, you know, indoors for a while with, with a number of different people becomes a, a, you know, a key factor. Are you able to model that aspect? I mean, in terms of like indoors versus outdoors or how people gather or how, how does that work within this model? Yeah, we we can you know, yes we can do that, but part of the problem we face and that what everybody faces so far is that there's no real um, scientific law or way to describe right. those probability distributions yet. All we know is that there are super spreading events and that we need to have some of them in the simulation. How many and what proportion of total transmission that it, uh, that accounts for and how much of that is due to kids and how much of it's due to adults. Uh, those are all hard problems. So we simulate them and we do our best to, to get it right, just like any other decision maker is trying to take right. into consideration all the facts and get it right. Yeah, that's uh, it's fascinating. So um, with regards to the specific question of um, school openings and, and COVID, I know you guys have been, you know, basically digging into that question. What what have you seen so far? What have you learned in, in sort of applying the model? You, you want to take that, John? Sure. So uh, in speaking with, you know, at this point, probably 50 or so different school superintendents, what some of the biggest questions that they're asking and what they're looking for are you know, between going full open, between going full online and then some combination of in-between, what are the number of cases that are going to likely arise from that? Not just from you know, their decision on students and teachers and then those families, but where do things spread from there? Uh, some school districts that might be on the borders of different uh, counties, some counties have you know, a red, yellow, green phase, Others might just have, you know, full open, full close. Uh, you know, counties that are, or school districts that are on the borders of those counties, they're concerned that there's overflow from other places or even across state borders. So uh, one of the things that we're looking at is how do we represent what's going on in those kind of border locations? Mm. So, for example, if we have, uh, we're in the city of Pittsburgh, Allegheny County, uh, surrounding County, Washington County. Uh, we have a couple of school districts that are interested in understanding. Well, if we if we look and behave more like you know, Washington County rather than Allegheny County, which is where the city's at, how are you able to account for that? And so, what we're able to do is look at you know just expanding that region that we're modeling the school district around. So, our specific process is fitting for the. Uh, the stage of the epidemic that that county is in. And then from there, modeling the larger social factors such as, uh, you know, 
shelter in place? What's the adherence to that? We can look at different mobility uh, data sets to say, okay, uh, maybe the Google mobility data set is a, the best indicator right now of social distancing compliance. We mm-hmm. can get a, a better understanding of that uh, in, this, in a particular area. And then from there, we can go and model the school's specific reopening policies and see, you know, okay, with strategy A versus B versus C, which option um, is providing the, the best result. And in some cases, uh, we're, we're seeing that you know, the population density um, and what's going on in the actual community matter a heck of a lot more, and it doesn't necessarily matter what option the school district goes with because the community spread is really what's driving what's going on in the school. And so getting that, you know, what's happening in the community right is is most important for that school superintendent to know rather than their specific policy. Oh, interesting. So that's, that's actually really interesting just in thinking through like, uh, you know, I mean, how much of this is all connected to the overall system of how, how things work, right? It's not just the school, um, but you know, what else is happening within the surrounding area, which, which certainly makes sense, but it's interesting that, that, that becomes very clear, uh, in your platform as well. Um, yeah. one of the things that we looked at, uh, earlier on was, uh, a scenario of a large social gathering around a baseball game. Mm-hmm. And Don, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the the results of the simulation that we saw there, because it, it's somewhat similar to this school reopening um, situation. Right. Um, so the uh, um, each community um, it, it has a, a, a sort of a, its own mm-hmm. epidemic vulnerability. Um, as a function, a good bit of that is a function of what the population density is and the crowding and places that are um, are, are more rural and uh, less densely packed have a lower probabilities of transmission. Uh, and uh, and there's this notion, this concept of the reproductive uh, rate of the epidemic is if you're, um, if every case generates more than one case on average, then the epidemic will grow exponentially. If every case on average gives rise to less than one case, then the epidemic will fizzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the challenge is to keep the reproductive rate below one. Um, in places that are high population density, that's trickier and more difficult than it is in low population density. So that uh, when you have a, a big mass event uh, that the what goes on at the mass event is also a function of what's going on in the community so that if you have a mass event uh, and you're already at a low uh, transmission rate in your town that you've, you've had good social distancing you've got good masks or you've got low population density then the large event tends not to have that big a an influence on itself. Mm-hmm. Sure, you'll have a few cases, but it won't spark a major epidemic. Um, similarly, if you're already at a raging epidemic uh, that uh, with the uh, the reproductive rate high, and you have a ball game, it, uh, it it hardly shows up on the total curve of the epidemic. But where it matters is there's sort of this threshold tipping point uh, where if you're you're around the effective reproductive uh, rate of one. Uh, that's when the, the 
uh, events, large events can influence the overall community spread much more than either at either of the extremes. Interesting. That makes sense. Um, and so in terms of, you know, getting people to, to use this platform and to understand things like around, you know, school openings, uh, I know that you're talking to various school districts. Is it, is it, you know, are you, are most of your conversations with school districts? Or are you looking at like county or state level officials and sort of asking them to sign up to use your platform or what's, what's the setup there? Mm -hmm. So it's individual school districts. It's also the conveners of superintendents. So some mm -hmm. states uh, it's at the state level, other states it's at the intermediate unit level. And so, you know, a state like Pennsylvania, they'll have different intermediate units, uh, which are just below the state level, very connected to the state department of education, but they're who the, the local or regional superintendents go to for information. So, um, you know, before and after our podcast on with multiple intermediate unit uh, executive directors in Pennsylvania, um, there's, you know, other states where there's one office that oversees the entire uh, kind of plan for school districts. And so we're, we're in conversations with nine different states right now, all at different levels, all with different uh, Department of Education setups and Department of Health setup. So, um, you know, just as we were talking about at the beginning, uh, the public health response, you know, might be 50 and then some type of responses in, in education. It's, it's similar. Right. Right. Um, and, and how is the business model structured? Uh, obviously your business, um, is it, you know, is there a, a charge for, like, you know, setting up a model or is it, is, you know, what, how, how is it structured? So we did a, a standard fee f per school district um, mm -hmm. that will be one fee and that fee, you know, it doesn't matter how big or small the school district is. And that fee covers uh, the school district for us to run models as things change over time for the entire school year. Um, for states, we've looked at you know, total number of school districts per state took off a large margin because one of the things that we're also doing or, and looking you know, to do when we get a larger numbers of these school districts is to cohort the schools and mm. say, oh, if, if here's a school district in Oklahoma that by size and age demographics of the community looks similar to a school in, uh, you know, outside of Omaha, Nebraska, then we can help those school districts learn from one another Mm -hmm. uh, about saying, oh, here's what this school district did with their strategy. Here's what is working. Here's what isn't. And uh, Don created a great name for this uh, called SCAN, the School COVID Adaptive Learning Network. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, taking an approach using medicine of these adaptive learning networks, uh, we can help schools better learn as they go rather than, you know, come up with a strategy wait to see if it's working or not. Um, so our approach enables schools to know what, what is working, what isn't working quicker, and then to help scale that uh, information across school districts. And, and how much information do you need from the specific school districts and how much of that is like already built into the model? So we have roughly eight questions that we ask mm -hmm. school districts and we're collecting information from them 
that include uh, you know just location of the school. So we want to make sure that the schools that we've represented on the platform uh, accurately match the schools that they are serving. Uh, then we ask for the specific number of students per grade level. And from there, the number of teachers and staff and their specific age uh, uh, demographics and breakdown. We then just ask for the school strategy um, or the, the different strategies schools are considering based on different phases um, of the epidemic or different uh, local social distancing policies, you know, red, uh, yellow, green, or whatever their local, um, you know, county or state uh, has. And then we'd look into something like, you know, is the school district going to say wear masks or not wear masks? If so, what is their estimate or what is the, the estimate of that county's compliance? And uh, so we're, we're trying to capture uh, specific information to make sure that what we have on the platform already is fit and matches. And then also we want to make sure that the specific model that we you know drop into that school district is fit to what those local uh, decision makers sees going on in their community uh, related to the social dynamics of mass compliance or social distancing compliance. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, so I, I, I know obviously right now there's, there's a, a, most of the focus is on COVID um, and that's totally understandable and makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know that this platform was developed, you know, specifically with infectious diseases in mind. Um, but I'm curious what other areas you think the technology might be useful for when it's not so <laughs> urgently focused on, on this particular uh, pandemic. John, before you go into the uh, some of the other specifics, let me say that even though we started with infectious diseases, we always had in mind that it was anything which was contagious in human societies. Mm. Um, and it didn't have to be an infectious disease. It could be behaviors or it could be consequences of, um, uh, of environmental impacts or uh, when we, so the software is, is not specific to infectious diseases. Uh, that's what got it started. And frankly, that's where the money was originally mm -hmm. uh, because sure. people were concerned about the, the infectious disease epidemiology and biowarfare and the like. But from day one, we, we built a platform that had the flexibility to address um, any kind of, of, of human problem in the uh, social environmental dimensions. Yeah, and to go off of what, what Don's saying, you know, some of the areas that we've been getting into is looking at policy modeling. So you know, we're, we're talking about policies that decision makers, whether they're at the state, county, school district level, can make uh, that are set out to protect their population. Well, we can look at other types of policies uh, from a smart cities perspective. We mm -hmm. can you know, go beyond just public health and healthcare, begin to look at different energy utilization. Um, we recently partnered with the National Energy Technology Lab and uh, have a few different use cases that we're uh, working out with them. And then even looking at how the climate influences the human populations, but mm. then to consider the reverse of that, say, well, here's how, you know, what's going on in the human population impacts the environment. So um, there's, like Don said, any, any number of, uh, you know, human problems or human phenomena 
uh, we, we can look at. Uh, one of our biggest areas, and uh, we, we have a, a really good partner on this that we're going to be speaking with later today, is looking at things like the, the epidemiology of privilege or social mobility, hmm. um, very human social driven yeah. um, things that have you know, emergent properties at the population level. Well, what are things that underlie that and drive that? And that's where using the agent-based modeling approach, you can actually look to uh, one of the things that Don mentioned earlier with Josh Epstein's, one of his first books, grow these artificial societies. Uh, one of Josh's quotes is, if you can't grow it, you don't understand it, or something to that effect. And so mm -hmm. when we're you know, looking to our policymakers and, and leaders and decision makers to say, oh, well, this policy is what's best for uh, the population, and it's going to you know, work on improving the social mobility for uh, vulnerable populations or traditional underserved populations. Well, in order for that policy to be you know, really understood, uh, what we do from our approach is look to grow the current state of things. And then from there on the platform, we can look at you know, what knobs need to be turned, what uh, programs or you know, what interventions could be made to lead to different outcomes. So uh, yeah, I think all, all along and, and one of my biggest interests in uh, looking at creating a company around this platform was that it, it isn't just infectious disease specific. It, it truly is a broader health in the the broadest term or broadest definition of health right yeah that, that's that's fascinating i mean sort of my mind has been racing with, with with other ideas and and john you and i had talked last week you know before we set up this this podcast and and i had been thinking about things and like you know we do a lot of work here in terms of like thinking through innovation policy and and you know what kinds of policies will lead to you know greater innovation levels within society. And, and so I'm sort of thinking like, huh, I wonder if, if, you know, you could model that within the platform of different, you know, patent laws or, or a variety of other laws and sort of see how, how different things change. Uh, and so I, I, again, obviously not a, uh, an immediate focus or an immediate concern, but it's interesting to, to see that you guys are, are thinking beyond just, just this, this model and have been since the very beginning. That's, that's very cool. Um, so to, to wrap it up, I mean, I think as a, you know, this is, this is fascinating. It's something that I'm just personally generally interested in, but I'm sure many of our listeners are as well. Um, for, for people who want to learn more, um, or who might be interested in, in trying to connect you to their own school district or, or, uh, you know, local officials who are analyzing all this stuff, where, where should they be looking? So for school districts, we have a specific segment on our website, uh, that's geared towards school reopening policies. So there are things that can be, um, we can walk through that there. Um, there's contact information and, and other ways to get in touch with us, um, from there. And, you know, we'd be glad to, um, if, you know, there are listeners that are hearing this and saying, wow, I wish uh, our school district, if, you know, if you're parents and seeing the, <laughs> the reopening plans that are getting rolled out to your, you know, kids' schools and you're like, oh, yeah, I wonder if they've modeled that or have they simulated that out. Uh, those are a lot of the questions that we get these days. So, yeah, glad to take uh, references and, um, you know, hope to work with as, as many schools as we can to, to help with the 
current issue at hand. Cool. And and the the website for people who want to know it is epistemics, and that's with a, an X at the end, E-P-I-S-T-M-I-X dot com. Uh, and uh, from there, there's there's lots of information there in, in terms of how to contact you. Um, but uh, this was this was a great conversation, really interesting from my end. As I said, you know, I'm, I'm just generally fascinated in all these different models. And, and the thing that you've set up is is to me at least seems very unique and, and very interesting. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys do with it and uh, excited to, to learn more. Uh, about about how it's used and and hopefully finding that it's useful and you know specifically with school reopenings and and managing that in a way that that limits the 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 spread and hopefully slows down the spread of of covid and uh you know i think i think it's really great and i'm excited to to see where you guys go with it good thanks it's been a fun conversation great and uh thanks to everyone for listening as well and we'll be back uh, next week with another podcast if we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tap.